Luke chapter 14, verse 7. Uh, it's, it's possible, I'm not sure, that the most arrogant thing that anyone can possibly do is preach a sermon on humility, which is what I'm doing this morning. And um, for that reason, I've enlisted a lot of help from other devout Christian men to sort of lend a shadow of credibility to what I'm saying, so I hope you'll bear with me. You'll remember that last week, Pastor Bill was talking to us about a story where Jesus was invited to the house of a Pharisee, and we're still there at that scene this morning where we're picking it up in verse 7. Now, Jesus told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Uh, it seems to me that in every human heart, there is this competitive desire to excel other people in some way, shape, or form, and also to be recognized for it. And like I said, this doesn't mean that everyone pursues the same kind of excellence. Some people are very ambitious when it comes to money, when it comes to possessions, keeping up with the Joneses, so to speak. Others are very hungry and thirsty after popularity. Some people really desire to be distinguished as being artistic or athletic or intellectual and then to have kids that are distinguished for the same qualities. And then there are some people that strive for moral superiority in their individual lives and in the lives of their family, it seems like sometimes there's almost a competition to see who can have the most traditional family. And the list goes on and on. All I'm trying to say this morning is that I really believe that in every human heart, either secretly or openly, there really is this desire to sit in the seat of honor to take that place before we're invited to it. And unfortunately, this doesn't disappear when we enter into the church in our spiritual life. 
I already suggested that some people do really, I think, strive after moral superiority. And I think the devil is doing his best amongst Christians to produce a certain kind of Christian that gets really envious and really judgmental when he hears about the good deeds of others, gets very defensive, dismissive, to produce the kind of Christian that is going to breathe a sigh of relief when his brothers or sisters fail because it pleases us to be above them in some sense. I really think that if we're not careful, we can get to the point to where we're not really trying to please God, so to speak. We're trying to please Him more than our neighbor does. And the root of this competitive desire that I'm talking about is called pride. And I happen to be in wholehearted agreement with the theologians who have said that this is the deadliest and most dangerous of all sins. That this right here is the chief enemy of lasting joy and peace. And in his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis has this to say about it. And I wanted to read this to you this morning. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free. Everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink or even that they are cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who was not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who is not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault of which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. And he describes this as pride or the anti-God state of mind and If we want to test, therefore, to see how proud we are, one of the ways we can do it is just ask the question, how merciful am I to others when I see pride in their lives? And William Law, who I'll be quoting from later, also had another test. He said, you can have no sure sign of a confirmed pride than when you think you are humble enough. And that's really sobering, but it's also really important to remember that no matter where we are in terms of our spiritual development, in terms of our spiritual maturity, there's always room for more humility. Always. Now, I know that nowadays it's very popular to speak of Christianity as being primarily a relationship with God 
And I myself am very glad to hear this. I think it's very healthy to think of Christianity in this way because I think it has a tendency to check something which is very dangerous in evangelical churches, which is the tendency to, instead of proclaim the gospel, sort of market the gospel as a means to get into heaven and to escape eternal destruction. And sometimes I get the impression when I listen to evangelical preaching that that's presented as the goal almost. Like Jesus is the really nice guy with free tickets into God's celestial theme park. And if we'll pray the right prayer, he'll give us one. And as a pastor, I really done my best to avoid that kind of preaching and to really emphasize that Christianity, the Christian faith, is about knowing God. Not after we're dead. It's about knowing God right here, right now, and building a relationship with God right here and right now. If we're not interested in seeking God, we're really not ready to receive what Christianity is offering because that's what it's about. And this isn't to say that what happens to us after we're dead isn't extremely important because, of course, I believe that it is. It is absolutely important. And it's absolutely important that we tell people about it, (laughs) that this life is not going to end when you're dead. But the real question is, how do I get to know God? And the answer is, by sitting down in the lowest seat. William Law, in his book, A Devout, uh, Serious Call to Devout Christian Living, wrote this, The weakness of our state appears from our inability to do anything as of ourselves. In our natural state, we are entirely without any power. We are indeed active beings, but can only act by a power that is every moment lent to us from God. We have no more power of our own to move a hand or stir a foot than to move the sun or stop the clouds. This is the dependent, helpless poverty of our state, which is great reason for humility. And then George MacDonald in his book, The Hope of the Gospel, speaking of humble people, says, they are those who never despise men and never seek their praises. The lowly who see nothing to admire in themselves, therefore cannot seek to be admired of others. The men who give themselves away, these are the freemen of the kingdom. When a man says, I am low and worthless, then the gate of the kingdom begins to open to him. For there enter the true. And this man has begun to know the truth concerning himself. Now, I understand that many people, if they took those words seriously, 
would think that they are greatly exaggerated, would think that they might even border on what we would call hate speech and a real detriment to self-esteem. But I submit that that, again, is just our pride. That is the human pride that says, I don't want to sit down in that lowest seat that's labeled chief of sinners because I'm better than that. Now, it seems to me nowadays when, and perhaps it's been this way for a long time, I don't know, but when two young people are considering getting married, sometimes they almost treat it like a business deal. And they sit down and they think about, okay, what are my assets? What do I bring to the table? And what are my faults and failings that my spouse is going to have to make allowances for? You know? And then what are my spouse's assets? What does my spouse bring to the table? And what is my spouse's faults and failings that I'm going to have to make allowances for? And if this equation balances out... <laughs> Then, at that point, we consider getting married. But what if you were, getting, you were considering getting married to someone, and you knew that all the assets were on their side, and all the faults and failings were on your side? I think most people would get very, very uncomfortable. But that is exactly the situation that we are in in reference to God. He has all the goodness, all the greatness, all the power, all the love is all on his side. And we are poverty stricken. But like any relationship, it needs honesty. Honesty is absolutely essential. If we want to know God, we've got to be honest with ourselves, and we've got to be honest with Him. And here I think it would do well for us to remember Jesus Christ and the example that He left for us. Because there was no lower seat of dishonor than the cross of Calvary. Christ died like a criminal like a complete outcast. He died the most shameful, disgraceful death that you could possibly die in first century Palestine. He bore our sins on an instrument of torture that was designed not just to kill its victims, but to completely humiliate them. The Son of God was nailed naked to a tree like the most despised man to ever walk the earth. Christ sat down in that seat. And because he did, God has exalted him. He's given him the name that is above all names. So that we can be set free. So that we can receive forgiveness of our sins. If we will just humble ourselves and say, God... I deserve your wrath for the way that I've lived my life. God, I have nothing to recommend myself to you. I have no 
assets. I can't prove myself to you, God. I can't justify myself to you, God. All I can do is sit down and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says that when we humble ourselves like that, God will exalt us. We begin to get a clue of who God is, and we begin our relationship with Him. That's where it starts. And, of course, I understand that much of what I'm saying this morning paints a very bleak picture of human nature. And I certainly don't want anyone to leave here with the morning that the imp- with the impression that God doesn't desire for us to come home. I mean, even if you don't know Him, even if you don't have a relationship with God, God does love you. And it is His desire to, for you to come home. That is the heart of God. I just recently became more acquainted with the story of a man named Henry Nowen, who was a professor. He taught at Harvard. He was an author. He was a political activist. He was a priest who, from a very early age, knew that he wanted to serve God with his life, and that's what he did. But one day, after a six-week lecture tour in America where he was asking Christian communities to give thought to how they could bring relief to the violence that was going on in Central America that time, he just found himself feeling completely dejected and exhausted. And he's sitting in the office of a friend, and she's got a poster on the wall of a painting that he had never seen. And that painting, or that poster, rather, of the painting caught his eye, and he was just completely mesmerized by it. He couldn't take his eyes off of it. Couldn't even pay attention to what she was saying to him. And he saw the picture of this elderly man with a long gray beard. And he's dressed in this rich, lavish red cloak. And he's, he's stooping down slightly and looking down. And he has his hands resting on the back of another younger man that's kneeling down in front of him with his head buried in his chest. And this younger man, his head is shaved. He's completely dirty. He's dressed in rags. The soles of his sandal are completely worn out. And... He felt just like that. And three years later, he had a chance to actually see the original in St. Petersburg, Russia. And over a period of two days, he spent four hours staring at that picture. Rembrandt's picture 
of the prodigal son. And uh, he just, uh, meditating on that, said, you know, as, as hard as it is to forgive people, as hard as it is to be merciful towards others, it's a lot harder to receive mercy and love that is purely a gift. Because in our prideful nature, there's something that resists even that. There's something that resists a love and a mercy, which as C.S. Lewis wrote, bears witness solely to the goodness of the giver and not to our own goodness. But we absolutely need that love. If we don't receive that love from God, I don't see how we are ever going to be able to love others. And in saying this morning that that's where our relationship with God starts, I certainly don't mean to suggest that that's where it ends. I mean, I really believe that this is a principle that we as Christians need to be reminded of all the time because after conversion... The temptation to exalt ourselves above our neighbor is not going to go away. The temptation to take that seat of honor before we're invited to it is not going to go away. And self-satisfaction is going to continually find or seek to find a doorway into our mind and into our hearts. So that we need to be praying to God. We need to be saying, God, please replace my desire to excel my neighbor with a desire to love my neighbor, to give to my neighbor the same kind of love you have given to me. And when we succumb to that temptation to exalt ourselves, I do believe that God will discipline us. I believe that he's done it in my life many times and will probably have to do it Again, the mercy is there as well as the discipline. But when we have that relationship with God, when we know Him, we have the assurance that He loves us and that He's going to bring us home safely. And at no other time is that assurance greater than when we sit down in the lowest seat. Let's pray. Holy Father in heaven, I thank you for the day that you've given us here to gather together. This is the day that you've made, and I pray that it would be our resolve to rejoice and be glad in it. Give us the grace, Lord, as a church, to be united in Christ-like love for one another that the world may know that we belong to you. That the world might see the face of your Son in this congregation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.